For WVCW Radio, I'm Fidel Alisson. You're listening to One Credit News, the premier podcast for the latest at VCU. In today's podcast, find out what happened when Monroe Park finally opened to the Richmond community, and what did esteemed Watergate journalist Bob Woodward have to say about politics today when he spoke at the Singleton Center? Then, a segment we'd like to call Watch This Space. But first, Last Thursday is probably one of the most dramatic days in national politics in recent memory. In what was really some remarkable testimony, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. Today, not because I want to be. Uh, she's the professor who alleges she was sexually assaulted by nominee for the Supreme Court Brett Kavanaugh in high school. She offers some really raw emotional testimony of her memory like of to. the events. But the details that about that night that bring me here today are the ones I will never forget. They have been seared into my memory and have haunted me episodically as an adult. Hours later, Kavanaugh takes to the dais. I categorically and unequivocally de- deny the allegation against me by Dr. Ford. And he offers this furious rebuttal to her testimony and denies all the allegations and says that this really was the doing of the Democrats and the cause of being angry about the 2016 election. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit. Meanwhile, the entire world is watching, including people in the VCU community. This was one of the rare moments in which people here on campus are paying very close attention to a national political issue. Sarah King covers public affairs in Richmond for Richmond Magazine. Georgia Gein is the managing editor of the Commonwealth Times. They are both survivors of sexual assault. I wanted to get their reactions and analysis to the day's events, and they offered a very important perspective on what happened on Thursday. Sarah King and Georgia Dean, thank you guys for coming on and talking about this. So I wanted to get your analysis on it and your big takeaways. So I guess uh, one of the big takeaways for me was that this, um, like you like you just said, um, this does matter. I, I was a little surprised at how many people were watching, you know, C-SPAN, maybe for the first time in their lives, um, to watch this testimony. Um, I, I definitely thought that the Comey testimony, when, when Comey testified before the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, that that was a big deal, but it really seems like the Kavanaugh testimony kind of took precedent almost over that in terms of how much people were paying attention to it. And I think that that ultimately speaks to, to the momentum and, and the weight of the Me Too movement, which started off as something that I personally, and as a survivor, thought probably wouldn't gain very much steam. And I was I was shocked, actually, as it did pick up at, at how I guess at, at how many of my male colleagues and friends and my boyfriend, even my boss at the time, commenting that they were just so shell shocked mm-hmm. at the sheer number of accusations or not even accusations, but personal testimonies of women coming forward and saying like yes this happened to me too mm-hmm. and for me that was a little it was a little strange actually mm-hmm. because i was sitting there thinking I, it was and actually it was kind of frustrating because i was sitting there thinking like how can you not know or see or understand how prevalent and 
intrinsic this is to being a woman. I can't think of a single female friend, colleague, etc., who doesn't experience sexual harassment and or discrimination and or maybe have been assaulted at some point in their life because that's just that's just part of the fabric of of being female, I think. And so and so I think that the fact that this um accusation or or testimony from Christine Ford it it really highlights that people are paying attention and yeah. Georgia, I want to ask you, what was the sense of how much people were paying attention to this and like what people were feeling, especially women? And then could you also answer mm-hmm. that same question, yeah. the big takeaway? You know, I would mention it offhand to people. You know, someone would say, oh, this has been a really weird day. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, the, the Kavanaugh thing. That's why they're like, yeah, of course. So I think it was it was fairly widespread. And I, th- I think I think people were so engaged in this, especially young women, because they didn't necessarily even view it as a political issue at the beginning. I mean, for me, and I'm typically a fairly politically minded person, um, when I heard about this, uh, my first thought wasn't the fact that this is a political issue. My thought was, I have experienced something similar to this, and this is a big deal, and men who perpetrate these kind of things and men who do these kind of things have so much power over me and over other women who have experienced similar things, and that's really scary. And um, going back to what Sarah was saying about, you know, in, in the aftermath of the Me Too movement and when it was first starting, I think I had a professor who referred to, he was like, oh, you know, Georgia classmates, like, what do you all think about the Me Too phenomenon? And I got really, really mad because I'm like, it's not a phenomenon. This is real life for most women and many other people of different identities. And to call it a phenomenon is really kind of looking at it as a spectacle. It's trivializing. Exactly. It's trivializing. Like, what do you mean a phenomenon? Like, ah, this is... This is everyday this is our life. life. Yeah. This is our lives. Right. Like, what do you? It, it is yeah. so. And 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 just to see like some of the reactions, you know, I I would say that as a whole, people are generally very supportive of ish. You know, in my own circles, social circles, supportive of survivors at this moment. But just just to see comments from people still to this day that were people I would consider close to me or people that I work with even um trying to you know the way that they address it is is still very much it 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 makes you feel like we haven't made as much progress as we think we have um because a lot of these ideas are still very ingrained in the political system and just the ideas of a lot of older people but not even just older people just a lot of young men and you know women who perpetuate this misogyny, internalized misogyny, that kind of thing. I want to mention or ask about quickly where you guys think this fits in with the Me Too movement or what role this specific incident has in the Me Too movement. Yeah, and I've, I've kind of reflected on that question a little bit, but in maybe a different context, which is to what extent does Ford's allegation and testimony, as well as that of the two other women who have come forward since, to what extent does that weigh on Kavanaugh's nomination as a whole? Because what we have to keep in mind is that while this is no doubt huge, we also haven't heard very much to speak of with regard to Kavanaugh's perspective on women's issues. Um, Even before the Ford uh, allegation really blew up, he was very um, ambivalent of about where he thinks certain opinions or uh, certain case law or decisions or precedent, what his personal belief is. Um, so, like, Democrats would say that there are other 
like even before this, there were other issues with this nominee. Right. There's a couple of takeaways here. There's the idea that this is like a partisan sham or whatever. Um, but then there's also the fact that this isn't unusual and survivors of um, sexual assaults know this, uh, especially at a time when this happened to Ford. Um, I wasn't alive then. I don't know what the culture was like, but I know that when I was in high school, you know, I didn't come forward about being sexually assaulted in a very similar setting, in a very similar way. When I was 15, I lost my virginity to rape in a very, very similar... And so the fact that she ran out of that house scared, the fact that she fled to the bathroom, the fact that she was afraid to come out until she couldn't hear their voices anymore, and then she says, you know, she ran from the house, that speaks to me. There are a number, I mean, probably innumerable women who have been in a similar situation at some point in their lives when you are a teenager and there are boys, I mean, in this case, they were both on the football team, they were bigger than her, no doubt, who are inebriated and won't take no for an answer. I agree with Sarah's analysis of it. Like, it's, Ford has a platform because of the Me Too movement. There's even a good chance that she felt comfortable to say something because of the Me Too movement. But I, I think really what this speaks to is is kind of, it's just a representation on a national political scale of a culture that has gone down for generations, for decades. I mean, the night of the, of you know, the night after my mom and I watched this, we talked on the phone for three hours and we related our experiences and, and it just really speaks to how this is generational. I really liked what Sarah was saying about the, you know, the culture of, you know, the boys, you know, drinking beer in high school. And it's just something that so many people can relate to and seeing that, you know, seeing how it played, it it's playing out at the moment, like in, in such an, like in a way that could have so many ramifications for a lot of people. It's a little, it's scary, but it's also interesting. It, Scary in what way? Scary in that it, not that this hasn't happened before, but just the way that, you know, these guys that go around doing, you know, allegedly doing horrible things when they're in high school, things that, you know, you witness growing up that are acceptable. You know, there was a tweet that I saw that, you know, the Brock Turners, um, you know, Stanford swimmers grow up to into Brett Kavanaugh's who then make the rules for the Brock Turners. And... It it's just giving goosebumps hearing that. It's terrifying, you know, to think that, you know, if, if things don't change soon, if our attitudes don't change, then it's going to take another generation for things to evolve to a point where, you know, if I have a daughter, then I will feel like she is safer than I was and that she grew up in an environment that would support her more than I was supported um, if she were to be sexually assaulted. to talk about the entire day on Thursday and kind of go through it, kind of go through some of the different details and get your guys' reaction to them. So I think one of the things that people were surprised with when the hearing started, the first hearing, was the fact that her voice was trembling. She was visibly shaken. She went into great detail. I was pushed onto the bed and Brett got on top of me. Certainly detail that 
we're not used to seeing on the dais of uh, U.S. Senate committee. He began running his hands over my body and grinding into me. I yelled, hoping that someone downstairs might hear me, and I tried to get away from him, but his weight was heavy. Brett groped me and tried to take off my clothes. And that was kind of just a shock to people. I was surprised by it, and maybe I shouldn't have been, but I want to get your reaction to kind of how she came into this and the fact that her voice was shaking. What do we what do we gather from that? My voice probably would have been shaking in very much the same way because um, Christine Ford <laughs> is not a politician. She's not an attorney. She is not, she's again, not on trial. And yet she was put in a position, I would argue, largely against her will up until the very end when it kind of came down to like being between a rock and a hard place where if she didn't testify, everything, the, the threats to her home and her family would, I think, probably be for naught. The fact that Ford had to recount her story, arguably not necessarily something she always wanted to do in front of pretty much the entire country and frankly the international stage as well to an extent. I completely understand why she was so upset and it was it was upsetting for me to to see her doing that because I oh my gosh I could never I could not do that and I think that most people couldn't do that and and would probably be in a much worse state than she was and I think um and I you know the fact that maybe she has been able to go to therapy for it, you know the fact that she is I don't want to like discount her story in any way because obviously she suffered a really horrible trauma, but the fact that she did have access to therapy and, and the way that she could process a little bit of that beforehand, I think might, and the fact that she is obviously a professional and she was able to, the fact that she's able to discuss all the science behind this kind of things in her testimony, she definitely was probably in a very good position to discuss this kind of thing more than other people would be. What do you guys make of the outside prosecutor that was brought in? And kind of the reasoning behind that. And then what did you guys think about her questioning and her role in this entire thing? They, they brought in the prosecutor because they didn't want to make a spectacle of themselves, you know, and, and just going off of my knowledge of how a lot of men interact with women when they're talking about these kind of issues, maybe just in a broader sense, are frankly, often very uncomfortable. And that, I think, is proven even more by the point that when that they were so active in their in their defense of, of Kavanaugh when it did come time for him to testify. And, and just the way that, that, okay, okay, you know, now we're comfortable because we are talking to somebody with whom we might even identify. I want to talk about his testimony. When he came into this, he... Walks in, walks into the dais, and kind of immediately is furious and gives this denial of Dr. Ford's testimony and then goes into talking about how he believes that this was a result of the Democrats. And he talks about Hillary Clinton and Democrats being angry. And I really, I don't follow the logic there, which is in part what makes me think like it has to be a narrative that's speaking to and for this, this demographic of people that do somehow see a correlation between people like the Clintons, who again, like, where has Hillary even been? Like, Jogging. Like, yeah, in the like in the mountains like... with, with Bill, like, come on. <laughs> I just, I don't get it. If Kavanaugh is in fact essentially a mouthpiece for the GOP, for Fox's audience, for the president, whatever that may be, that is highly, highly suspicious and concerning because as a SCOTUS nominee, you you should you should not 
have those tendencies. You should not be displaying those kinds of behaviors. And, and the political question um, of all of this and the way that it's factored in, I think, has really tainted his his nomination as a whole. The fact that he was unequivocal about certain things, like he says he's never blacked out while drinking some other things that he was just so sure about. I saw some contrast in that and how Dr. Ford testified and how she was very upfront about the fact that she she did not remember everything. What did you guys make of that? I am a little bit more inclined to believe a person that is that is upfront, like you were saying, a person that admits the fact that they do not remember everything. I just wanted to point out the fact that Ford was, you know, very much playing the trope of the extremely helpful woman in trying to give every kind of detail that she could. And I think that the fact that Kavanaugh, you know, was so adamant about the fact that he was denying everything was very telling uh, of the fact that he has been built up so much by all of, by, by the fact that he is a man in a very powerful position. There is a moment in which Senator Lindsey Graham, the Republican from South Carolina, goes into this, this long joke. defense this of Brett Kavanaugh. This, this, this is going to destroy the ability of good people to come forward because of this crap. Your high school yearbook. You have interacted with professional women all your life. Not one accusation. At one point, You're he says, this Bill is hell. Cosby he says these hearings are the most unethical sham he'd seen in his decades-long political career. What did you guys make of this defense? Not only just this defense by Lindsey Graham, but kind of speech after speech by the Republicans lamenting how much Kavanaugh has been through, talking about how this is affecting his family, how he's a great man, and kind of just saying he doesn't deserve this. Well, he's up for re-election, I believe, and right. he probably did the arithmetic on this and figured that, you know, South Carolina, his seat is going to be up for grabs unless he wrangles some of the Trump base that he needs to come out and vote. And he's not going to get those votes, especially as a Republican in South Carolina, if he if he's being called a Democrat on Fox News. The question at hand is, is Brett Kavanaugh fit for this position and those allegations certainly tie into this, but they don't they're not the be all end all and in the for the whole picture. And I think that I think that what is frankly more telling is the way that he reacted to the to the <laughs> to being asked about this. I mean, he he was not questioned by a special prosecutor for hours. He was he was greeted by by a very um like a welcoming committee, really, <laughs> um, on the part of the GOP. And, and yes, like, had to face some, some tough lines of questioning from the Democrats, I guess. But also, if he is innocent or... I mean, it just, it just seemed, like, a little bit curtailed. And, and the fact that he, he kept denying when Harris, Senator Harris was asking, will you ask that the FBI investigate this? Will you personally take the initiative? Will you take responsibility for your past and allow us all to move forward? And he wouldn't give a straight answer. And that, I think, more than anything else is telling. So the FBI investigation, who knows what will come out of that and how it will affect the nomination. I wouldn't be surprised if he's voted in along party lines. I wouldn't be surprised if his nomination is pulled entirely, depending on what the FBI investigation entails. What I do know is that I think kind of regardless, like I, this, this has potential to go one of two ways. Either, either these w women coming forward, their testimonies are 
going to to be taken seriously maybe in a way that anita hills wasn't or he'll have a seat on the supreme court and i guess history will have to tell from there sarah georgia thank you guys so much for joining me and thank you guys for being very open with your experiences and i really appreciated having your perspectives thank you for having me yep thank you After a long wait, Monroe Park finally opened to the Richmond community last Thursday. I want to welcome you back to Monroe Park. The rain may have dampened the mood a little bit, but Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney didn't sound at all desolate as he welcomed the newly renovated park. So as you can see, Mother Nature has not been very cooperative with us this year and tried to keep us from opening this park. But I think you would be pretty satisfied, she would be pretty satisfied with what we've produced. Stoney was joined at the presentation by VCU President Michael Rao and the president of the Monroe Park Conservancy, Alice Massey. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been 167 years that this park has been in existence, since 1851. The leaders at the time recognized the importance of providing a place in the center of our city where residents could relax, kick back, take a stroll, be with their families, and enjoy what this urban green space has to offer. That idea is just as important today as it was the back The park's then. $6 million renovation includes 132 new trees and a fountain, which now some students have had plenty of fun jumping into. This park, like the other greater parks in our city, should remind us that the value of lifting our heads up once in a while and taking just a deep breath. But it also took longer than the anticipated 18 months officials first cited. Now it's finally opened at the heart of VCU's downtown campus, something many students are excited to see. Of course, none of this would not have been possible without the strong partnership that was forged between the city, VCU, and the Monroe Park Conservancy. For WVCW News, I'm Fidel Alasan. Bob Woodward is a legendary Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He's best known for working with his Washington Post colleague, Carl Bernstein, to uncover the Watergate scandal, which eventually took down President Richard Nixon. But he has a new book out titled Fear, about the Trump White House, 
and it's quite damning on the president, essentially alleging that many of the president's aides are terrified at the prospect of Trump's presidency. On September 25th, Woodward visited VCU. He talked about journalism, Trump, and his new book. But because audio was banned, shout out to our correspondent Juliana Maquero for trying anyways, you'll just have to listen to me describe what he said. On partisanship, Woodward said, leave that for the populace. The job of a journalist is to remain politically neutral. It's something he says helped him in the 70s as he uncovered Watergate. And likewise, the job of a journalist is to go out and meet people. Woodward lamented modern journalism culture in which many hide behind emails and phone screens. Woodward describes the times we live in as, quote, a pivot point in history as we fight what he calls a war on truth. You have to deal with the truth, Woodward said. Truth is the foundation of how we have our debates and how people make their decisions. Woodward in his book describes somewhat of a chaotic White House, unlike anything he's covered before. And he elaborated at VCU, saying that the White House has no damage control mechanism to help with disasters. God help us, Woodward said, if we have a crisis. The universe is a vast, wondrous place, and you have no idea about it. Not at least until you've listened to this upcoming segment. Correspondent Juliana Maquero joins VCU physics professor Robert Gowdy to talk all things space. It's out of this world. In this episode, they talk black holes. Professor, would you like to introduce yourself and how long you've been doing this? Bob Gowdy, Dr. Gowdy if you like, and been at VCU since 1978. I guess I've been doing general relativity since about maybe 1965 or so, something like that. Beautiful. (laughs) So I'd like to talk about black holes today, and my first question is, what is a black hole? Okay, uh, it's basically a collapsed star, and it's defined by the property that uh, it has an event horizon, a place of no return, where any light from inside the event horizon can't get out. And what exactly happens at this event horizon? Do we know much about the math behind it? Oh, yeah. If there is any? No, we we understand the math completely. Uh, We understood that before we found any black holes. It's it's a prediction of Einstein's field equations, general relativity. Uh, Pretty much the first real exact solution of his equations, he, he did the equations in 1916, 1917 or thereabouts, uh, somebody found the solution for spherically symmetric object, like the gravitational field of the Earth or the Sun or anything like that. Uh, 
It was noticed right away that the solution did have some peculiarities. That is, if you imagine the earth being crunched down to the size of a marble, mm -hmm. then the solution was telling you some things would blow up, some, some things would just go, go to infinity. And that, but nobody worried much about that because the earth is not the size of a marble. Uh, <laughs> of course. And so on. And it wasn't really until 1960 or so that people figured out what that solution was telling them. Um, that basically, if you got all the mass of the Earth crunched into the size of a marble, you would have a black hole. Uh, and that place where things were blowing up was not a physical problem. It's just that the coordinates were going bad there. Uh, and that was the event horizon. So we've understood it mathematically for quite a long time. It was only a short time after that it was understood that somebody figured out how to go, how to see one. It seems mm -hmm. kind of hard, right? Because it's black. I mean, it's black, uh, and the space <laughs> seems to be black yeah. too. Yeah, and it isn't that big. If it's uh, if it's something with the mass of the sun, it's going to be about uh, maybe the size of Richmond. Uh, so it's kind of wow. whereas the sun is millions of as a million miles across. Mm -hmm. uh, but a Russian physicist, uh, Yaz Zeldovich, pointed out that about half the stars in the sky are have partners. They're in binary pairs or even bigger conglomerates. And if one of them becomes a black hole, one of them collapses down to be a black hole, uh, it, it can start eating matter coming uh, coming off of the other stars. And as the matter falls into the black hole, it will heat up. You have to remember the scale of things. The black hole has a gravitational field the same as our sun, uh, but you can fall all the way down to something just a kilometer or so away from the center. So th things get going very, very fast. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of energy of motion, a lot of kinetic energy. And there's a traffic jam around the hole. You have things coming from millions of miles around, all trying to get through an area the size of Richmond. Yeah. And you get a tra big traffic jam. Uh, and so the stuff coming up from behind hits the traffic jam, converts its uh, energy of motion into things like X-rays. So you get a fluctuating X-ray source. They already knew about some X-ray sources. Neutron stars are almost as small as black holes, but they have a solid surface. Mm. And so if you have stuff falling on the surface, it's more or less a continuous X-ray emission. In the case of a black hole, there's no surface there. All you've got is a bunch of clouds orbiting around the hole trying to get in. And the stuff coming up from behind hits these orbiting clouds. And you, you expect a fluctuating X-ray signal, yes. with a fluctuating with a time scale about the orbital time for one cloud to go around, which is about a millisecond, actually. Really? That's <laughs> Yeah, really, amazing. really fast. Uh, so shortly after he made that prediction, we, we sent some of the first X-ray observatories up above the atmosphere. It's kind of surprising because uh, to some people that X-rays will go right through your body, but they won't go through very much air. If you want to see X-rays from astrophysical sources, you've got to get above the atmosphere. So this was the 60s, and so satellites were only just beginning to be a thing. And they now uh, I can't even imagine what they look like. You yeah, know. yeah. Uh, and so what they sent up was a sounding rocket, not not a satellite or anything. It's just something that sort of like a whale pops up out of the ocean. Yeah. Uh, and so it would pop up out of the atmosphere and look around uh, and fall back again. They sent one up with an X-ray detector, and by our standards, it was pretty crude. I'm exaggerating only a little bit. If I say, describe it as a, maybe a, a lead box, a Geiger counter in a lead box with one wall missing. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> it, it was a little less, a little more sophisticated than that. Yeah. But basically, it would tell you if there were x-rays and would tell you the general part of the sky they were coming from. They shot the thing up, and pretty much the first thing they saw was what Zeldovich had predicted, a fluctuating x-ray source coming from the constellation Cygnus. Yes. Uh, 
they got really lucky because that source was turning on and off. And they noticed that whenever their x-ray source would turn off, there was a radio source in that part of the sky that would turn on, uh, and vice versa. And so they figure, well, it must be the same thing. And with a radio telescope, you can get a very good location. So they had the radio telescopes located for it. And then they pointed the optical telescopes at it and saw that it was a binary star, blue giant star, with something invisible going around it. Uh, and they worked out that its mass had to be at least seven times the mass of the sun, which was much more massive than any other any kind of collapsed object except the black hole. And so that that became our first example of, of the black, black hole. hole. It was called Cygnus X1, first X-ray source found in Cygnus. In Cygnus. <laughs> so anyway, that's the early story. So there's multiple different types of black holes. Am I correct? Uh, mostly depending on the size. Yeah. yeah. And what so? In the Milky Way, we are orbiting a black hole. Right. Yes, and can you tell me more about how how can we be orbiting a black hole and yet not get sucked in? Oh, I know this oh. question arises all the time. Okay. Mainly, you just need to understand how orbits work. Mm -hmm. uh, the planets don't get sucked into the sun. They just stay oh, on their true. elliptical orbits around there. And the same thing happens if you replace the sun by a black hole with the same mass, the planets would be doing exactly what they're doing now. Mm -hmm. uh, they wouldn't be sucked in, they'd just be going in orbits. Mm -hmm. The aura, as you get close to the black hole, the orbits stop being exactly what Kepler would have recognized. Uh, they, they're, they're sort of elliptical, but they precess around a lot. Mm -hmm. And then eventually there, there's a point, well before you get to the event horizon, where there are no stable orbits. Then things fall straight in. Interesting. So but do you have we to have, get pretty close. Yeah. Do we have any science based upon like what would happen if something were to fall in? I know the destruction and mass. Oh, yeah. Mass, yeah. But they, they've actually watched something falling into the black hole at the center of uh, the galaxy. Really? Can uh, you yeah, elaborate and, on that? Well, pretty much uh, as you get close to the black hole, uh, there are tidal forces because uh, Gravity falls off with distance, mm -hmm. and so the part of whatever it is that's closer gets get pulled harder than what's further away, mm -hmm. and then everything just gets stretched out and pulled apart. Uh, and the energy of motion of the object gets converted, a lot of it into x-rays as it hits other things, and it's gone. Uh, so and there it goes. Yeah. Do we know where? Any theories about where these possibly could be going, the objects that fall in? Uh, they, well, the theoretical model that we've got that goes all the way back to 1916, that original solution, has, was extended to the interior, uh, and it says basically that there is a mathematical singularity inside. That within a short time after it, crossing the event horizon, things hit the singularity and get crunched down to nothing. Nothing. Yeah, pretty much. Well, that's thank you for all of that. You know, I've learned a lot about black holes, and I know not to fall into one now. Right, thank right, you very right. much. One Credit News is produced and edited by me, Fidel Alasan. Katie Bashista is our production assistant. Juliana Makedo is our correspondent. Special thanks to our guests, Georgia Gein, Sarah King, and Robert Gowdy. That's it for now. I'm Fidel Alasan. See you next week.